everyone. Welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the music, politics, and culture of the 1970s. Today, we have the Pride episode. It's all across the world. June is designated as Gay Pride Month, culminating in much hoopla and celebration on the final weekend of the month. That is, unless you live where I live, in Phoenix, where Pride is in April, because June is just too damn hot for parades. June is Pride Month because the gay rights movement unofficially began with the Stonewall Riots in New York City on June 28th and 29th in 1969. I got into this in much more detail on episode one of this podcast, so please go back and check that out if you have not already done so. If you are unfamiliar with Stonewall, the very least that you need to know is that patrons of the gay bar, the Stonewall Inn, had their fill of police raids and harassment. They fought back, riots ensued, and the gay rights movement soon followed. Because this is the Pride edition, that is the focus of the episode. Songs that were written for the LGBT community or songs that were claimed by it because of the message. Songs that are an affirmation about resilience or strength or simply, hey, love yourself just the way you are. I would argue that it took a bit more courage to align yourself with the queer community in the 1970s than it does today. After all, homosexuality was considered a mental disorder by the American Psychiatric Association until 1973. The old tired trope that gay men were sexual predators and that lesbians were either man-haters or just had not found the right man yet were very common. More on how Anita Bryant, the orange juice queen, used that whole predator myth to her benefit in a few minutes. The Kinks. The Kinks tell a story with the song Lola. The story is about a man who meets Lola and in 1970, Lola was referred to as a transvestite. Lola very well may have been a transvestite. However, Lola may have also been transgendered, but people were not very good at knowing the difference in 1970. The term transgender was not even a thing until 1971, although certainly the notion that people have questioned their assigned gender has been a thing since people have roamed the planet. Nonetheless, the Kinks had not roamed the United States since 1964 when they played hits such as You Really Got Me and Tired of Waiting for You. The American Federation of Musicians would not let the Kinks perform in the United States for four years, presumably for bad behavior at a taping of Where the Action Is, which was a Dick Clark show. You wouldn't blame Ray Davies if he wrote something for his band, that would be sure to get him back in the good graces of the American music industry. But instead, he wrote Lola, which he said was based on the real experience of the band's manager one night in a club in Paris. Here is a sample of the lyrics. Well, I left home just a week before, and I've never kissed a woman before. But Lola smiled and took me by the hand and said, little boy, gonna make you a man. Well, I'm not the world's most masculine man, but I know what I am, and I'm glad I'm a man, and so is Lola. Here is Lola, released in June 1970, and a top 10 hit in the fall of 1970 for the Kinks in the United States. Go 
declines Lola's invitation to have a sexual encounter, it is still an affirmation. He does refer to Lola as my Lola, and the idea that there would be a hit song, which is arguably a classic rock staple, about an encounter with a trans person is pretty damn progressive for 1970. I should point out, though, that radio stations would fade out that last part, the kind of the gender reveal no doubt saving our sensitive ears. But remember, uh, being trans was considered very deviant in 1970. But imagine the surprise of Kinks fans who bought the record and they took it home and they dropped the needle and they went, oh, now I get it. Now, the fact that radio stations played Walk on the Wild Side at all still amazes me. Lou Reed wrote a song that certainly echoes Lola but takes it even a step beyond Lola because Lola just hints at what may have happened to make the little boy a man, which didn't actually happen. Walk on the Wild Side just outright tells us what Candy was doing in the back room. You know, in the back room, she was everybody's darling, but she never lost her head, even when she was giving head. The song is a wonderful narrative about characters in Reed's life and more specifically, people who hung out at Andy Warhol's studio, The Factory. Holly Woodlawn from Miami, FLA, a transgender Puerto Rican woman who really did learn how to pluck her eyebrows as she was hitchhiking up to New York. Candy Darling, who was a transsexual actress, and the actor Joe D'Alessandro, who had the nickname Sugar Plum. D'Alessandro, who is bisexual, is the sugar plum fairy in this song. I feel like I need to stop for a second and clarify for those who do not know the difference between transgender and transsexual. They are the same in that the person does not identify with their biologically assigned gender. A person who is transgender may take on a name, uh, wear the clothing, and simply live the life of the gender they identify with. A transsexual has made the physical transition. That is the very least that you need to know. Back to the song. Lou Reed wrote this song because he said he wanted to introduce people to some other people that they may not know or may have thought that they did not want to know. What makes the song important is not simply the subject matter, which was no question controversial, but the confident manner in which Lou Reed sings it. Here are some people you might meet if you walk on the wild side. He was very casual about it. Like, this really is not so wild. It might be different to you, but not that wild. And so wild takes on a very ironic tone. 
Here is Walk on the Wild Side, co-produced, by the way, by David Bowie, released in November 1972. It made it all the way up to number 16 in April 1973. Holly came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey, take a walk on the wild side Candy came from out on the island In the back room she was everybody's darling But she never lost her head Even when she was given head She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls go do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-
officially entered the uh, chair dancing portion of the program. Uh, a song that was a huge hit in the discos, even if Dancing Queen was not, and this was out at the same time as Dancing Queen, is Don't Leave Me This Way by Thelma Houston. DJs were playing this song all across the country. Motown was supposed to have given this song to Diana Ross, but they gave it to Thelma Houston instead. I am sure she is glad they did because this thing was a number one pop hit. It was a number one soul hit. Um, of course, a number one disco hit. And to top it off, it won a Grammy in 1978. It is unquestionably one of the greatest dance songs of all time. But in the 1980s, the lyrics of the song took on a whole new meaning as the gay community was literally decimated by AIDS. While obviously a favorite of the gay men who made up a large percentage of the people going to the clubs in the 1970s, they claimed these lyrics as they watched so many of their loved ones die. Don't leave me this way. I can't survive. I can't stay alive without your love. Oh baby, don't leave me this way. No, I can't exist. I'll surely miss your tender kiss. Don't leave me this way. forgot that I'm supposed to be talking. God, that still sounds so good. Uh, 1977, steaming up the pop charts along with uh, Dancing Queen. While that's happening, in January of 1977, Miami-Dade County, Florida, passed the Human Rights Ordinance, an anti-discrimination law that banned workplace and housing discrimination based on sexual orientation. The sponsor of that bill was Ruth Shack, an old friend of a singer named Anita Bryant. Anybody who was alive and had a television in the 1970s recognized Anita Bryant. She was the orange juice lady. The Florida Citrus Commission hired her in 1969 to be their spokesperson, and so she was, in magazines with her bright smile and her even brighter sleeveless dresses. And there she was on TV, happily informing us that orange juice wasn't just for breakfast anymore. Not content to be the orange juice queen, Anita Bryant launched the Save Our Children campaign 
with the mission of repealing that anti-discrimination law in Florida. She warned that equality for, quote, human garbage, as she referred to gay people, would lead to the right to marry dogs. I think she specified St. Bernard's. And she counseled that because gay people, presumably now meaning men, could not give birth to children, that they might come and take your own. All of this fear-mongering led to exactly what she wanted, a repeal of the law, and it wasn't even close. It was a two-to-one margin. Although in her later years, Anita Bryant said she had no idea that her local crusade of hate would turn into a national crusade of hate, she attracted the likes of Jerry Falwell and became the darling of conservative Christians who also did not like the idea of, what, equality? Her crusade against gay people was such a success that she set her sights on eliminating the separation between church and state and putting prayer back in public schools. Her campaign led her to Des Moines, Iowa on October 14, 1977, and a nurse by the name of Tom Higgins interrupted Bryant's press conference by shoving a cream pie right in her face. Well... At least it was a fruit pie, she said. Oh, ha, Anita, so hilarious. Of course, then she burst into tears. That was quite a moment. If you will go to my website, ftr70.com, check the show notes out. I've got a video of the pie in the face. Such was the environment for the LGBT community. And I should address the adolescents who were questioning their sexuality in America in 1977. Can you imagine hearing the orange juice lady refer to you as human garbage? Well, remember that this woman had a very big platform. She sang at the Super Bowl at President Johnson's funeral. Her face was plastered all over the television. Of course, gay people organized on one of America's most time-honored forms of protest, They organized the boycott. No orange juice for gay people and their allies. Good luck getting a screwdriver in a gay bar. All a reminder, of course, of why pride matters and why the music matters and mattered. Discrimination was open, it was celebrated, and it was pervasive. Okay, enough about Anita Bryant. If there was anybody who should have recorded I Will Survive, it was Gloria Gaynor. Her mother had just died. Uh, Gloria herself fell off a stage while she was performing, and she woke up and found that she was paralyzed, thankfully only temporarily, but she had to have spinal surgery. Her former manager had wasted all of her money and racked up a bunch of debt in her name, Her record label was about to drop her. I will survive indeed. When she was presented with this song as a possibility for her comeback, she was all over it, but could not believe that it was the B-side to the single Substitute. Frankly, I can't either. So when Substitute was released in 1978, Gloria took it upon herself to promote the other side. As was often the case, though, it was the club DJs who helped determine what was and what was not going to be a disco hit. 
So when club DJs, especially the DJ at the famed Disco Heaven Studio 54, turned the record over and played I Will Survive instead of Substitute, they knew it was a hit too. What a lot of radio stations did not know is they already had the song. They were calling up and saying, hey, where is this I Will Survive and when can we get it? And they were told, hey, just turn the record over. A lot of people can claim I Will Survive as their anthem, especially women who have had to deal with abuse or divorce or any number of life's obstacles. This song resonated with the gay community in 1978 and 1979 for much of the same reason that it resonated with everyone else. It is the rare person who does not want to claim the right to survival. But then, as we moved into the early 1980s, like Don't Leave Me This Way, this was also a song about literal survival in the midst of the AIDS epidemic. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong And I grew strong And I learned how to get along And so you're back from out of space I just walked in to find you here with that sad look upon your face I should have changed that stupid lock I should have made you leave your key If I'd have known for just one second you'd be back to bother me deemed the number one smash I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor uh, to be culturally, historically, and or artistically significant and selected it for preservation in the National Recording Registry. Let's talk village people for a minute. The village people, named for Greenwich Village in New York, a neighborhood known to have many gay people in it, was the product of Jacques Morali, a French music producer who gazed around a gay nightclub and thought, gee, I wonder if I could create a gay fantasy band with all of these dudes that gay men would want to fantasize about. You know, a construction worker, police officer, etc. The first guy he recruited was the bartender, Felipe Rose, who was dressed as a Native American, except he had jingle bells on his boots. Morale assembled the rest of the band, who would mostly not be the band that you saw on American Bandstand or wherever when they were singing YMCA. No, this was a different band, and they released a self-titled album in July 1977. I know, I know, YMCA. But I'm making my case for the earlier songs, and I talked about YMCA on episode one of this podcast so I think I've given it its due. This was a gay band marketed to gay men 
that sold a million copies of its first album, which only had four songs on it. In the discos, the DJs would play a mix of all these songs, but here's a sample of San Francisco, You've Got Me, which introduced the world to the village people. about leather and Levi's and t-shirts. Look, is YMCA a better song than that? Eh, Probably. Is YMCA a gay anthem? I just, I'm not sure about that. You know, YMCA is an important song in music history and in 70s history. Uh, But I, I have a hard time going so far as to say it's a gay anthem. Part of the problem I have with that is that the record label was trying to push the village people back into the closet when they realized what a bunch of mega stars they had on their hands. So uh, I definitely think it's an important song. I'm just kind of on the fence about whether I would consider it important in terms of gay anthem status. There was nothing, however, that was unclear or anything we were unsure about when it came to Sylvester. Sylvester was one of the very few out and proud artists of the 1970s. He was very open about the fact that he also did not care much about disco, at least until artists began to take some of the spotlight from the producers. He made a disco record in 1978 because disco was a cash machine. It was an eight billion, billion with a B, dollar a year industry, riding this uh, uh, Saturday Night Fever wave. If you have ever watched the movie The Rose, the Bette Midler movie about this Janis Joplin-esque singer, you have seen Sylvester. He is one of the drag queens singing the Bob Seger song, The Fire Down Below, in a seedy bar in downtown L.A., You Make Me Feel Mighty Real started as some chords in Tip Wierick's head. He had played them, not thinking much of them. This was often how songs started in Sylvester's band. Sylvester heard them, he made some suggestions, and right there, as the band is just trying to figure out what they've got, Sylvester writes the words and the melody. In fact, 
he said he didn't even really write the words at first. He didn't think much about them. He didn't think much about the song. He said, I didn't think the song was that hot. There weren't a lot of words, but they said exactly what was going on. To dance and sweat and cruise and go home and carry on and how a person feels. You make me feel mighty real, 1978, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real was number one on any dance club music chart you could find. And it has been heard in all sorts of movies. And I I heard it was in a video game. Uh, It's all over. Anything that is about 70s or disco, this seems to be kind of the iconic song. In 2019, it was bestowed the same honor as I Will Survive, when the Library of Congress selected it for preservation in the National Recording Registry. As they should. This song is joyous, and it embodies pride in who you are. Side note, Sylvester died of AIDS in 1988, and he left the money from the royalties of all of his work to HIV and AIDS charities in San Francisco, his adopted hometown. No episode about gay pride music would be complete without a discussion about Donna Summer. There is no way for me to overestimate Donna Summer's importance to the gay community, men in particular, in the 1970s. Her disco classics like I Feel Love and Love to Love You Baby, both discussed in other episodes of this podcast, by the way, created this space on the dance floor for everyone to just be free and express themselves. She created space for joy and sensuality and sexuality, and it was life-affirming. However, her relationship with her gay fans was, as we say, complicated. Donna was a born-again Christian, so much so that she turned down the opportunity to record It's Raining Men because of the way hallelujah and amen are used in the lyrics. Then came the rumor that made many of her gay fans turn away from her. Two rumors, actually. Allegedly, at a performance in 1983 in Atlantic City, she said that AIDS was the result of the sins of gay men and that 
God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Then came the backlash, and then came the protests. Donna denied ever making the crack about Adam and Steve, and she said that she was quite ignorant about AIDS when she made the other statement. She said, At the time, I thought AIDS was a herpes pimple, like you got on your mouth. I certainly didn't have any idea what it really was, and certainly if I had in my heart, I would not wish AIDS on anyone. I'm not that kind of person. It's one of the most horrifying diseases around. I don't think they're doing enough for it. She blamed the whole thing on Jim Feldman, who wrote the article for The Village Voice, and she said that she thought he was mad that she was born again and was just trying to stir something up. I believe her. Why on earth in 1983 would she willfully turn her back on the people who made her career what it was? She was surrounded by gay people. She knew gay people who died from AIDS. Not when, not in 1983, but by the time the decade was out, she did. Yes, her statement about AIDS was ignorant. But unless you were alive in 1983, you really cannot grasp how ignorant many people were about AIDS. So Donna Summer remains the disco queen and her place in 70s music history and gay history is secure. Because this is more of an honoring of Donna than a song, I'm going to pick one of my favorites. This is Last Dance from 1978, the Academy Award winning Last Dance by Donna Summer. Thank you. 
was on the uh, Thank God It's Friday soundtrack. It won a Golden Globe, won an Academy Award. It did not go to number one on the pop charts. The song that Donna Summer followed up with uh, MacArthur Park, that one actually did go to number one, and that was her first number one. And I should point out, MacArthur Park was actually probably a little more popular in the discos than Last Dance, but I made an executive decision because it's my podcast. We should not forget that gay pride exists by necessity. For most of our world's existence, the queer community has either had to hide or it's had to assert its right to be part of the community at large. Certainly music has an enormous place in this. Artists that use their platform to validate that rightful place of the LGBT community and definitely disco, which was the transition of the gathering place for queer people from those seedy mafia owned bars to these joyful places of inclusion. Gay pride is truly the intersection of music, politics, and culture. That is a wrap for this episode of For the Record the 70s. Tell your people if you like what you hear. Do leave a nice review on iTunes if that is where you find this podcast. Happy Pride, everyone. <laughs>